John chapter 6. John uh, chapter 6, as we continue our study in the book of, uh, of John. John chapter 6, and let's look at verses 37 through 40 as we begin this morning. John chapter 6 and verse 37. It says, All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which I, he hath given me I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one that which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last, at the last day. Now, we just really have read one of the most profound passages in the Bible today. Uh, these verses contain truths that uh, I think uh, can never really fully be co- comprehended by the mind of man until we stand with him complete in his image and glory. But uh, in these Short verses, there are 110 words. Did you count them while I read them? 110 words, 98 have just one syllable, 11 have just two syllables, and one has three syllables. It's not uh, something that should be hard to, to understand. But it is truth that is sometimes hard to understand and fully comprehend. But Jesus uses the simplest language possible, and yet he teaches us a truth that's so deep that no man can ever fully comprehend it completely. It's a truth so simple that even small children can grasp it. So in these verses, we find an invitation. Uh, we've all received invitations in the mail or invitations to this event or that event. Maybe it's a birthday party or a wedding or uh, some event. Um, and an in- invitation really is designed to inspire confidence. Uh, you really don't have an invitation that once that uh, says to you, well, you really don't want to come to this, do you? You know? No, there. it's usually, you're invited. You come. Join with us. We're going to have a great time. And, and it, so it's, it's an invitation of confidence. These words here in this invitation speak of confidence that rests within the heart of the Savior as he looked forward to Calvary. These words speak of confidence that sinners can have as they see the horror and understand the penalty of their sins. These words speak confidence that can be possessed by the saints of God as we journey toward our home in heaven. And so it's an invitation here this morning, and it's an invitation of confidence, and I think it has much to say to us today. Let's look at it. First of all, notice the Savior's gift. Jesus has declared his identity to the Jews. He has declared himself, in verse 35, to be the bread of life. He tells them very clearly that anyone who will receive him will never hunger nor thirst. Then in verse 36, Jesus makes a very sad statement. He says, ye also have seen me and believe not. Their statement brings into, this statement brings into sharp focus the fact that the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. 
In fact, John went so far as to say he came unto his own and his own received him not in John chapter 1 verse 11. Now some people might have seen this rejection by the Jews as an indication that the ministry of Jesus Christ was a failure. You know, the very people he had come to, he had, uh, they turned a deaf ear to his preaching. If anyone thought the ministry of Jesus was a failure, they're missing the big picture. But the first part of verse 37 tells us about the Father's gift to the Son. This gift is given to Jesus as a, a reward, so to speak, for all that he had suffered here on earth. And the gift is the proof and the promise that his mission into this world is not in vain. The gift, though hard to comprehend for us who are just mere mortals, is the greatest blessing that we could ever fathom or understand. So we want to examine that this morning a little bit. First of all, the character of this gift. Verse 37 says, All that the Father giveth me. The character of this gift is seen in the word all. Uh, The word encompasses within it every sinner who will ever be saved. That word speaks of every redeemed sinner from the sweet little girl saved in Sunday school class to that brazen street walker that's saved from a life of wickedness. That word speaks of the small boy who places his faith in Jesus and is saved at a young age. It also embraces the drunkard who has lived a life in a drunken stupor. Uh, The word speaks of all those who have ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, or you will ever be saved, you are God's gift to his son. You are God's gift to Jesus for coming into this world and dying on the cross. And from my perspective, that doesn't seem like too much of a gift. That I'm a gift to Jesus? Well, that's not much. But I know what I was when the Lord found me. Yes, even as a boy, I was a sinner. A sinner who did things that were not right, that were sin against God. And, of course, you know where you were when you got saved as well. Some of you got saved early in life, some later in life. But I'm pretty sure that you weren't any better than I was. And so God gave us to Jesus, and he died on the cross for us. And it sounds like Jesus maybe got the short end of the stick. But he got just what he wanted. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see the character of this gift, then the contributor of this gift. In verse 37 it says, The Father giveth me. I've already made mention of this, but God is the one behind the gift. And yet it's the entire Trinity involved in this great gift of salvation. The Father gave to his Son in eternity past. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for us when he went to the cross, 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. 
And then the Holy Spirit drew me to Jesus, saved me when I was a sinner. John 3, 5 says, Jesus answered, and verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we have the contributor. It's God himself, but it involves all three persons of the Godhead. And then thirdly, we find the consequences of this gift. Verse 37, all shall come to me. The work that God began in eternity past will be carried out fully in time. Every person the Father has given to the Son will be saved by the grace of God. According to this verse, all shall come. Now does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Well, that can be controversial, can it? Especially for those who teach that this verse is talking about Calvinism. And in particular, doctrines of unconditional election and irresistible grace. They teach that God chooses who will be saved. And when he chooses, that person uh, will be saved. And that person will definitely come to Christ. And these teachings of John Calvin have been coming to the forefront of many Bible students and preachers today. And they have accepted them as the truth. No doubt John Calvin was a great student of the Bible, but he had some wrong interpretations that caused a great deal of controversy over the years. One preacher said this verse speaks of the election and free will, and he says he can't explain it, but he just accepts it. Well, the Calvinists will use this verse to explain two basic tenets of this doctrine, and that is unconditional election and irresistible grace. Let me just talk about that a little bit. Because I do believe it's important, and I believe it's important because there are a lot of, uh, of resurgence of this teaching today, especially among young people. What did Calvin mean by unconditional election? He said basically some are elected to heaven and others are elected to hell, and this election is unconditional. I came across this picture recently with the Black Lives Matters thing. They said Calvinism, some lives matter. According to Calvin, only some people are going to get saved. Or some are elected to get saved. Others are elected to go to hell. Do you believe that? That's not what my Bible teaches, that some people are going to, you know, uh, God's will is that people go to will, uh, hell. God is not willing that any should perish, the Bible says. He's saying that God has already decided who will be saved and who will be lost. And the individual has nothing to do with it. He can only hope that God has elected him for heaven and not for hell. Calvinism teaches that God's choice that some people are to be damned forever. He never intended to save them. He foreordained them to go to hell when he offers salvation in the Bible. He does not offer it to those who are foreordained to be damned. It's offered only to those who are foreordained to be saved. Well, listen, this teaching insists that we need not try to win men and women Christ. So don't go soul winning. Don't, don't give your testimony to everybody. Don't send any missionaries to the foreign field because if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. And if they're not, they're not. Don't teach your children about God. Don't teach your children about Jesus. 
Don't have Sunday school class. Don't have junior church. Don't, don't do any of those things because they cannot get saved unless God has planned for them to get saved. And if God had planned for them to be eternally lost, well, they'll not come to Christ. Now, there are the doctrines of foreknowledge and predestination and election. God has his controlling hand over the affairs of men. He did select individuals like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David as instruments to do certain things that he planned. And he chose a nation called Israel. And through that nation, he gave the law, the prophets, and through whom uh, came the Savior, There is the doctrine, the Bible doctrine, the teaching that God does foreknow all things. Someone said, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God in his foreknowledge knows who will trust Jesus Christ. Well, he's predestined, that is predetermined to see that they're justified and glorified. But the doctrine that God elected some men to go to hell and that they are born to be damned by God's own choice is not taught in the Bible. Well, someone might ask, well, what about Ephesians 1, 4? According as he hath chosen us in the hymn before the foundation of the world. Well, that's not the end of the verse. You'll find that it says nothing about being chosen for heaven or hell. But it does say this. According as he hath chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is God's will. That's what God predetermined, that you should be holy and without blame before him in love as you trust Christ as your Savior. Well, what about John 15 and verse 16? Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Again, that's not the end of the verse. Don't stop there. The verse says nothing about being chosen for heaven or for hell. We are chosen to go and bring forth fruit. We are chosen to go and bring forth fruit. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. Now this verse here in John is a verse, I believe, that brims with confidence. If you come to Jesus realizing your sin is separating you from God, it says that he will not reject you. By coming to Jesus and receiving his free gift of salvation, you have become God's gift to his son. So we see here, first of all, the Savior's gift. Secondly, we see the Savior's grace. Now, think for me, uh, with me for a moment about this Calvinistic doctrine of irresistible grace, or that God simply forces people to be saved. Calvin was saying that God elected some to be saved and that he let Jesus die just for them. Just for the elect. In other words, they couldn't help but get saved. God's grace forced them to get saved. But again, the Bible does not teach this. Grace is an attitude, not a power. Calvinism says that man has no part in salvation, but the scriptures clearly show that men resist and men reject God's grace. Some of you know that because that was you at one point. You resisted. You rejected the message. Or you've witnessed to people. And you're continuing to witness to people, but they continue to reject and resist. Now, in the context, these verses uh, say 
Again, look at verse 35. It says there, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Throughout the scripture, men have rejected God's grace. Proverbs 1, 24 says, Because I have called and ye have refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not, all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Proverbs 29, 1 says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. John 5.40 says, And ye would, will not come to me that ye might have life. Acts 7.51, as Stephen was preaching, he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. In other words, there's no such thing as a can't-help-it salvation. You must receive Christ, and God in his marvelous grace invited you to come. He gave you an invitation of confidence. He invited you to come through Jesus Christ. And we can have confidence because of the Savior's grace. Now notice two things about this grace in our text here. Again in verse 37, we notice the extent of his grace. In verse 37, uh, he that cometh to me. The phrase cometh to me, that's very important, very essential. It declares the way of salvation. Being saved is not joining a church. Uh, Being saved is not being a better person. Not being saved, or being saved is not stopping your sin. Uh, Being saved is not doing good things. That's not being saved. Being saved is coming to a person, the person of Jesus Christ by faith. You know, God doesn't get a hold of us and drag him to himself. Uh, I won't do it this morning. I've got a bad back, but I was going to drag one of these guys up here to the platform. Uh, I think they'd probably be dragging me. But God doesn't just get a hold of somebody and drag them. You say, you get saved. And we can't do that either. We can't force people to get saved. I can't, if you're here without Christ, I can't make you get saved today. The phrase is explained here in verse 40, the phrase, everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. That's a description of the plan of salvation. All you have to do is to see Jesus for who he is, Place your faith in him, and when you do that, he'll save your soul. Of course, all those who see Jesus as he is will see themselves as they really are. If you see Jesus who he is, you'll see your sinfulness. You'll see your wicked heart. When you see the holiness of the Savior, you'll no, no longer be blind to the wickedness of your, yourself. And this realization of sin leads a sinner to come to Christ for salvation. Now, being saved is not some difficult, mystical process. You don't have to pray through until you get saved. You don't have to memorize the sinner's prayer. You don't have to walk even the Roman road. All you have to do is look away to Jesus by faith. Trust him that his death on the cross and his resurrection are sufficient to save your soul. Romans 10.9 says that if, we, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
Now, it's God that saves you. But you must receive the gift. So we have the extent of his grace. But then we also have the energy of his grace. Look at verse 37 again. He says in the very uh, last part there, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus promises all those who hear God's call and come to him, he will not turn them away. The words cast out here have the idea of driving someone away. They're really violent words here. And the lost sinner need never fear that coming to Jesus, he's going to be kicked out. Jesus isn't going to say, nope, you're no good. You get the, get the boot. I'm going to shove you out away. Same way as that dragging, you know. Regardless of the path of life you've taken, Jesus will turn you away if you will not turn you away if you come to him. Now the personal pronoun here, him, covers a lot of ground. Jesus opens the door for any person from any race, from any place, from any background to come to him. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care who you are. He promises you that he will, you will come to, if you will come to him, he will not turn you away from his offer of salvation. Your past sins are no hindrance to his saving grace. Your present condition is no hindrance to his saving grace. Your future failures are no hindrance to his saving grace either. If you come to him, he will not turn you away. He will save your soul. When Jesus was here on earth, he raised three people from the dead. He raised the daughter of Jairus in Mark chapter 5. He raised the widow of Nain's son, uh, of Nain's son uh, uh, in Luke 7. He also raised Lazarus, John chapter 11. And each of these individuals were dead. Dead, dead. They weren't just sleeping. They were dead. Now these three shared a similarity and they shared a difference. The one thing similar between their cases was the fact that each one was dead. Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, was no deader than the widow of Nain's son or Jairus' daughter. They were all dead. The only difference was their degree of decomposition. You know what the same is true of uh, of lost sinners. Every lost sinner in, is dead in trespasses and sin, and none gets any deader than the others. A lost church member is just as dead as a drunkard, or the harlot, or the bratty boy next door. If they're lost, they're dead. The only difference is in the degree of their decomposition. Now, the lost church member is dead, just as dead as the drunk, and the drunk, smell, drunk may smell worse. His sins have worked more corruption in his life than in the life of a lost religious person, perhaps. But it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been. If you're lost, Jesus will save your soul if you'll come to him by faith. That's a promise. He will not cast you out. So you have the Savior's gift, the Savior's grace, and then you have the Savior's guarantee. The truth here that all the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, gives the Savior confidence. The truth that him that cometh to Jesus, he will in no wise cast out, gives confidence to the repenting sinner. 
Now, the rest of our verses give great confidence to the saints of God. In these verses, we find the personal guarantee of our Savior to all those who will come to him. It's uh, in verses 39 through 40. It's confirmed by his plan. God's plan to save a sinner by grace through faith. When lost people come to Jesus for salvation, God will save them. When he saves them, he will save them for time and eternity. It's the Father's will that Jesus will lose nothing. Oh, that's eternal security right there. The word lose has a reference to being lost in hell. When Jesus saves a soul, the saved person will never, never, ever be lost again. I don't know what these people who teach uh, that you can lose your salvation, what they do with that verse. They must ignore it or cut it out of their Bibles. But it's right there before you. Jesus said that this is the Father's will. Two Greek words translated will in the New Testament. One of the words refers to a wish or a fond desire. The other word is the word which means what one has determined will be done. The one is a hope-so thing. The other one is a no-so or divine sovereign declaration that will come to pass. God does not just hope that none of his people will be lost. He has declared that not one single of those that he has saved by his grace will ever be lost. God did not send Jesus to this world to live and to die so that some people might be saved. You know, if they they can just hold out. By the way, that's another one of Calvin's teachings, that perseverance of the saints. Calvin believed that if you just hold out, You just hold on to your salvation. You're not going to lose it. Folks, listen. My salvation doesn't depend upon me holding it out. It depends upon Jesus holding on to me. And you can have confidence. Jesus is not going to let you go. I got saved by the power of Jesus Christ. I am kept by the power of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to heaven by the power of Jesus Christ, not by the perseverance of Daryl Flaming. God sent Jesus here to die for his people so that everyone who looked upon Jesus by faith for salvation has the guarantee of eternal life. That is his plan. So we're confirmed by his plan. Secondly, confirmed. Firm by his promise. Verse 40 again, it says in verse 40, uh, the second part, he says, And believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What a promise. Jesus tells us that all who trust him will be safe in this world, in the world to come. If you're saved, you're saved forever. Call it once saved, always saved. Call it eternal security. Call it eternal life. Call it anything you want. But when you're saved, you'll never be lost again. The Bible's very clear about that. We're kept by his power. 1 Peter 1.5. We're, we're promised everlasting life in John 3.16. Many other places. We're promised eternal life. John 10.28. We're promised that... We will never perish, again in John 10, 28. And we're promised that we cannot be plucked out of his hand. Again, John 28, 29. Again, the word pluck. To seize or to carry off by force. It's a violent word. Just like the dragging or the pushing out. 
or the plucking. Cannot be done. Now, there are many, many more, but you get the picture here. When we're saved, He did it forever. And so we're confirmed by His promise. And then we're confirmed by His performance. Again, we go back to verse 38. It says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. It is God's will that we never be lost again. It is the Savior's promise that we will never be lost again. These things guarantee by the Savior's performance. When Jesus came into this world, he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He did all these things to purchase our salvation. And when he died on the cross, Jesus was able to declare, it is finished. And that simply means that it's perfectly completed the task that had been assigned to him. He came into this world to pay our sin debt, and he did just that. He came to this world to shed his blood so God's wrath might be turned away from all those who received Jesus, and he did just that. Now, if you want to miss hell and go to heaven, you have to come and receive that invitation that Jesus has given you. Come to Jesus. You want your sins forgiven? You come to Jesus. You want to be saved by the grace of God? You have to come to Jesus. Now, what kind of confidence do you have this morning? Is your life, if your life came to an end today, you say, well, it's not going to end today. I've still got lots of time. I'm fairly young. You know, some some of you are getting a little older, but hey, I got lots of years left. We don't know that, do we? We don't know if we're going to draw the next breath. If your life came to an end today, you went out into eternity, what kind of confidence do you have? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you come to Jesus as these verses invite you to do? I'm thankful and I praise his name this morning that he died in our place. He paid it all, all to him we owe. Now all we have to do is be saved. To be saved is to come to him. But if, we're, if someone here is lost and you need to come to him, perhaps he's calling you today. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven.